What is this? Data from a top-secret military project. Born of the idea that sleep is the soldier's greatest enemy. Person was conducting sleep deprivation experiments on Paris Island. Not deprivation. Eradication. Why? Why else? To build a better soldier. Sustained wakefulness dulls fear. Heightens aggression. Science had just put a man on the moon. So they looked to science to win a losing war. And Willig and Cole were the lab rats. Lab rats with the highest kill ratio in the Marine Corps. 4,000 plus confirmed kills for a 13-man squad. You think Cole's behind what's happening now? I'm not here to do your thinking, Agent Mulder. All I know is Augustus Cole hasn't slept in 24 years. A new year often brings promises to treat our minds and bodies better than we did the year before. Maybe healthier eating, maybe signing up for a gym membership and actually using it. But what about sleep? Lauren Whitehurst says that should be our top priority. She's an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, and she researches the cognitive effects of sleep with a focus on what she calls sleep equity. And she's with us now. Lauren, welcome. Hello. Thank you, Sasha. More than a third of adults in the United States struggle with sleep issues. That's according to the CDC. What is it that keeps us from getting a good night's sleep? I think there's, we can boil it down to a couple of different things. Um, one is interpersonal, kind of just what we do, right? Maybe we don't value our sleep as high as we value other things in our lives. Other things are kind of external factors, things that act on us. Our work schedule, when we have to get up, when we have to be at work. Sometimes it's caregiving responsibilities, our children not sleeping through the night. Other things are societal factors, things outside of our control, kind of the ways in which our society values our productivity versus what our sleep needs actually are. And what about people who end up scrolling Twitter before they go to bed or they have that blue glow? I always hear that if you do that right before you go to bed, you're probably overstimulating yourself. It's going to affect your sleep. Yes. Having access to light all the time is not great for our body's systems that regulate our sleep. There's some new science coming out that's really trying to peel apart when is it helpful to use some of the tools that our phones give us access to, and when is it not? When is it going to create kind of greater or exacerbate some of the sleep problems that you mentioned at the top? There are also people who miss out on sleep more than others because of life and socioeconomic factors. You and your colleagues have a term for this. It's sleep equity. How do you define that? Yeah, I, I really think about sleep equity as an access issue. What we find in society is that caregiving roles or shift works, working when your body would rather be sleeping, disproportionately falls on people of color, black people, other people of color. Um, and that creates this kind of disparity in sleep that's more than just a difference, more than just something your sleep is different than someone else's. This is more of a systemic, systematic difference that we find. And that becomes a disparity. I want to read something from your, your university research webpage. It's about your research interest. And I'll, I'll read it slowly so people can absorb this. You say that you're interested in how, quote, the lack of access to restorative sleep can play a role in creating or exacerbating disparities in cognitive health for communities historically underserved by science and medicine in the U.S. How does sleep loss worsen existing health disparities in certain groups of people? 
You know, that's something that has really taken off this idea of sleep equity or sleep as the kind of original issue in a lot of other kind of health concerns that we see has really taken off in the last, you know, 30 years or so. Um, For a long time, we knew that sleep problems happened alongside other health conditions. Maybe if you had um, heart conditions or maybe if you had some other diabetes, other types of health issues, maybe your sleep was impacted too. What we're finding now is that sometimes sleep actually predates those health issues. And if we can start to think about or target the sleep issue first, we can actually start to solve some of these other health disparities where we find that Black individuals or Hispanic individuals suffer from diabetes and other health conditions at higher rates than other white people in the population. And poor sleep might be worsening those problems? Poor sleep might be worsening those problems, and poor sleep might actually be the cause of some of those problems. So let's talk about solutions. Now, some people can't change some of the basics, like their job or maybe the stress in their life and, and, and the lure of that screen. So how do you advise people to get more sleep? We have to start with an education. We have to start understanding the kind of fundamental purpose that sleep plays in our lives. The fact that sleep is really critical to regulating our healthy body. And if we don't get good sleep, a lot of the other things that we care about, our general overall health, our ability to engage with our loved ones, our social interactions will suffer. And so I think we start have to start to kind of center sleep at the middle of all of the other things that surround our lives. Once we start to reposition that, we can start to shift our kind of cultural value, how much we place on the value of sleep to ourselves. Lauren Whitehurst is an assistant professor of psychology and cognitive neuroscience at the University of Kentucky. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nevertheless, they could not understand that I'm a black man and I can never be a veteran. Today, we remember a hero, a pioneer, and a veteran of three wars who was among the all-black Tuskegee Airmen. I was 22 when I uh, got into flying. When the call came, I I responded and uh, ended up making the career because I enjoyed it so much. Brigadier General Charles Edward McGee died on Sunday at the age of 102. He was among hundreds of black men who trained outside Tuskegee, Alabama, to fight for the U.S. during World War II. We turned our back on on the fact that there was segregation, if you will, and took advantage of the opportunity to prove that we can fly airplanes, we can maintain airplanes, and those we can do whatever our education and aspirations, where those things lead us. The men endured intense racism. Their intelligence, their courage were often questioned. Former President George W. Bush put it this way at a ceremony honoring the airmen in 2007. These men in our presence felt a special sense of urgency. They were fighting two wars. One was in Europe, and the other took place in the hearts and minds of our citizens. General McGee went on to serve in Korea and Vietnam. By the time he retired in 1973, he had flown 409 combat missions. McGee has a distinction of flying some of the most single combat missions of any soldier in the United States Air Force or military. And that's that's a feat. Brian Smith is president of the Tuskegee Airmen National Museum. He called McGee a patriotic American hero. He was very uh, patriotic to this country, and not in the way that you hear patriotism talked about by some today. He wanted equality for all. 
Two years ago, McGee celebrated his 100th birthday doing what he loved, piloting a small jet. Welcome aboard, Captain. Beautiful, smooth, wonderful, great day of visibility. And folks, quite, quite a country we're flying over. Vice President Kamala Harris and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced McGee's death yesterday on Twitter, thanking him for his service and his legacy. Here's how McGee himself saw that legacy. The legacy I feel that we leave is that our young folks, regardless of their circumstances, say where they're born or where they live, uh, the school they attend, that they can achieve if they believe it. The words of Brigadier General Charles McGee. He died yesterday. He was 102. Stand tall, boy. Have some respect for yourself. Don't you know if you let people walk over you now, they'll be walking over you for the rest of your life. Look at me. You think I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this slop house? Watch it, Goldie. No, sir. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to night school. And one day, I'm going to be somebody. That's right. He's going to be mayor. Yeah, I'm going to... Mayor. Now, that's a good idea. I could run for mayor. A colored mayor. That'll be the day. You wait and see, Mr. Carruthers. I will be mayor. I'll be the most powerful man in Hill Valley, and I'm going to clean up this town. George McGill was born August 22nd, 1946. Fort Smith is my hometown, um, and I've had a chance to see her grow and change. He grew up when many people were judged by the color of their skin. You know, I, I came along at a time when everything was segregated. Schools, public spaces, all segregated after President Lyndon Johnson signed the civil rights, uh, signed the civil rights legislation in, in 1964. And I had just graduated from high school, uh, went off to the University of Arkansas uh, and experienced for the first time being in a classroom with anyone other than African-American students. It was quite uh, quite common to hear the N-word yelled across the campus as we went from class to class. Despite many challenges, McGill was able to rise up and succeed. It was easy for me to, uh, to focus on uh, areas that could make a difference. Many years later, the very same community where he grew up chose him to be the first African-American mayor of Fort Smith. I will never forget that experience and as I scanned the audience of the crowd that came uh, election night to be there with me. It was a scene like I wish I could see every day. In his time as mayor, McGill has helped oversee recovery efforts from record flooding in the city, the coronavirus pandemic, and unrest over race relations and police brutality. And now that he's made history, he hopes that he has inspired others. Being the first is not so important. What's important that there is a second. So um, I guess Martin Luther King or something, it's Martin Luther King Day or something, maybe it's tomorrow. So all the kids in Sundown Town School, they're doing um, Martin Luther King. And so uh, we're in the lunchroom, so it's an Arabian little boy. And um, so then, you know, ask the kids, they're in the lunchroom. So I guess they have it, the tables and numbers, however they have it. Uh, it's not very social distance, but they try. These kids don't listen. So he walked up to the little uh, rape. He's like, who knows who Martin Luther King is? So little boy raised, you know, kids raised their hand. So she went up to the little uh, Arabian little liquor store uh, owner, and uh, <laughs> he, he said, 
What do you What do you want to say about Martin Luther King? So he said, um, so he was black, and um, white people hated him, and um, they 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 hate black people, and um, so the white people they they didn't want him around or black people. So then um, you you know they they he was he was trying to have freedom, and 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 white people didn't like him or black people, and they didn't want him around, and then they. They killed him. So white people just killed him. White people killed him. And um, and so she took the mic. <laughs> she took the mic from him. So she was like, but wait, but wait. So you know white people, they, they don't like black people. And um, they, 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 they killed him. They just shot him. Voting rights in jeopardy was one of the main topics at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta at a service today honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Lily Oppenheimer has more. Speakers at the service included Vice President Kamala Harris, Atlanta's new mayor, Andre Dickens, and King's daughter, Dr. Bernice King, who spoke about voting rights bills being stalled in Congress for months and its impact on Georgia U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock, who is up for re-election this year. Too many, and I say it again, too many have sacrificed and suffered for voting rights to let it hang Senator Warnock in the balance. Warnock has served as senior pastor at Ebenezer for more than 15 years. He says it's easy for people to repeat MLK's quotes, but not necessarily back it up with action. Everybody loves Dr. King. They just don't always love what he represents. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is also up for re-election this year. He and First Lady Marty Kemp were also part of the program, speaking in a recorded message about King's commitment to nonviolence. His methods ultimately led to success and showed all of us that taking the high road is the best path to achieving lasting change. Kemp signed Georgia's controversial voting laws that critics have called voter suppression. Public comments called the governor's appearance a slap in the face and just a political move ahead of his gubernatorial race against Georgia Democrat Stacey Abrams. Voting rights have been a focus beyond just this weekend. The King Center wrapped up the week by working with several organizations on a voter registration drive in Atlanta. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And there is more local news at our website. That's wabe.org. This is WABE News. Santa Monica launched an effort to make amends with families whose homes were bulldozed to make way for the city's namesake freeway and its civic center. This Right to Return program now aims to connect 100 families displaced more than a half century ago or their descendants with affordable housing in Santa Monica. Last summer, we reported a story about the Santa Monica Freeway, the westernmost stretch of Interstate 10, which slices from east to west across Los Angeles. We studied the neighborhoods it destroyed, like upscale Sugar Hill, one of the few places where black Angelinos could actually own property during the 1940s and 50s. Raw and Van Nickerson are siblings who remember an idyllic childhood in Sugar Hill. And then... Suddenly... 
I remember my father telling his family that of the plans of the freeway coming through and how upsetting it was because our community was destroyed. And um, it still has, even to this day, effects on us today. That set the path for how things would become for our family. The Nickersons, whom you just heard from, do not qualify for this new affordable housing program because their family home was not within the city limits of Santa Monica. But they tell us they are both facing unstable housing conditions right now. Currently, my living situation is is dangerously uh, (laughs) wanting to to oust me out on the street. I'm very, very interested in any kind of help I can receive. I just wish that the powers that be in Santa Monica would somehow spread their magic to the city of L.A. so we can uh, benefit. Well, we wanted to talk to one of those powers that be in Santa Monica about how this program came about and its goals for the future. Santa Monica City Council member Kristen McCowan helped start the new program, and she joins us now. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Okay, so how did this program come into being? So we knew that Santa Monica had allowed the 10 freeway to come through. We knew that we had displaced people. And when folks in the community were starting to raise issues of displacement and eminent domain, we knew that we weren't necessarily going to be able to turn land back over or um, to, to people that were displaced. But we knew we had an affordable housing program. We knew that California was in the midst of an affordable housing crisis, Mm -hmm. and we thought there was a way that we could do something immediate to give people an opportunity to return to Santa Monica. Okay, so I understand that hundreds of families uh, qualify, and I'm just curious, how do they prove that they qualify? Yeah, so that's the tricky thing, right? And and we acknowledged and understood that this was going to be much harder than please hand over your former deed. We're talking about, in some cases, people who might be two generations removed from the person who lived here at the time that they were forced out of their home. Um, we know that some people may just have a photograph of a grandparent standing in front of a home with a street intersection in the background, or they may have an old immunization record from a pediatrician that they saw that listed their home, former home address. And so we're trying to give people as much opportunity as possible. Well, one reason we were very interested in talking to you specifically is because I understand that your family bought a home in the Pico neighborhood of Santa Monica, which the 10 freeway now runs through. Your family home was spared, but how personal does this program feel to you? So it's really personal. I mean, I grew up with these stories. So my father was born in Santa Monica in 1946. He grew up about one city block from what is now the 10 freeway. So my family, my father, his 11 siblings, and his parents were spared. And they were able to live in that home and continue going to school and continue living in this community. I also recognize that that freeway took away people's livelihoods. But in the now almost two years that I've had the privilege to sit on the city council here in Santa Monica, 
just my presence and my voice can make a difference for future Santa Monicans and former Santa Monicans that want to now return to Santa Monica. And that is that that's a responsibility I take very seriously. And it's never lost on me that this is my truth and my history and my past. But um, again, there are, there are some who's is much, much more difficult and traumatic than my own. And I think my entire council, our hope is that we do justice to those folks to the extent that we can. You say to do justice to the extent you can, because this program has gotten some criticism from those who say it just doesn't go far enough. We spoke with a historian, Alison Rose Jefferson, and here's what she had to say about the program. They should be offering them mortgage assistance. They were pushing those people out and inhibiting their social mobility. What do you think? Do you think this program does go far enough? It absolutely does not go far enough. And I appreciate what Dr. Jefferson is saying. I appreciate what many people have said in criticizing the program. But the reality is we are starting somewhere, which is a lot more than I can say for probably thousands of communities throughout this country. And we acknowledge that we want to get to a point where we can potentially provide Uh, mortgage assistance, where we can give people access to actual land ownership in this city. But right now, in the midst of COVID, this was a way that we could offer a new opportunity potentially to some that are struggling in their current housing. Do you hope that one day this program can serve as some kind of local or or national model, one that might benefit, say, the Nickersons, the siblings that we heard earlier? I would love to see that. I I think if we can be a model for you, one, acknowledging what mistakes your community has made in the past, and then saying, what can I do today Mm -hmm. immediately to potentially change someone's life? That's what I hope it inspires for others. Um, and to people who, you know, deserve more and they are right and want more than just an acknowledgement to that, I'd say we are at the beginning and we are starting somewhere and we want to look at how we can do better. That is Santa Monica's city councilwoman and mayor pro tem, Kristen McCowan. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The gay rights movement is changing everything. Women's colleges are adapting their admissions policies to reflect a shift in the way that people understand gender. Some students identify as transgender or non-binary, not exclusively male or female. So who belongs at a women's college? We have an encore presentation of this story by NPR's Melissa Block from Hollins University in Southwest Virginia. If you go to Hollins, you can bring your own horse with you. The school is well known for its equestrian team. I find first-year student Deanna Combs brushing down her ride in the campus stable. The equine program was a big draw for her, and that Hollins is a historically women's college is a plus. It just feels safer overall, especially we have no frats on here, which is a lot better. So yeah, horses and all women. Yeah. 
But that all-women idea can be complicated for students who don't see themselves that way, like Kendall Sanders, a Holland senior from Little Rock who's non-binary. I think it honestly started maybe my the end of my freshman year. I was just thinking, and I was like, I don't think I care about being a girl. Which for Sanders, coming from the Bible Belt, was a pretty big deal. I really just want to, to escape the binary. I don't want to spend my life trying to prove that I am one gender. I want to wake up, put on some clothes, go out into my day. If you perceive me as one gender, that's okay too. But for me, it just is what it is. Here's how Holland's latest admissions policy works. If you're a transgender woman, you can apply. If you're a trans man, no. But if you transition to male after you get to Holland's, you can stay. And that's an important shift. Before 2019, if you transitioned while at Holland's, you'd have to transfer out. Finally, if you're non-binary, Holland says no. Your application will not be accepted. To be admitted, you have to, quote, consistently live and identify as a woman. And that's messed up, says sophomore Willow Seymour, who is genderqueer. Personally, I think it's pretty offensive to exclude non-binary people. I know that historically it's a women's college, but a lot of people see it as like a refuge from patriarchal structures, and non-binary people deserve to be as much a part of that as anyone else. The Hollands Chapel Carillon rings out across campus each day at noon. This is a tight-knit community, small, just over 700 undergrads, with a proud history educating women in Virginia going back to 1842. Its reputation as a finishing school for Southern debutantes is long gone. The writer Annie Dillard went here. So did photographer Sally Mann. A promotional school slogan says, women who are going places start at Holland's. And I think that's something that should be phased out because there are so many people here who are going places who are not just women, you know. That's Jaya McMillan, a Holland's junior vice president of the student government. She's wearing a wishbone charm on her necklace, a totem of how lucky she feels to be at Holland's. Her mother went here too, class of 1995. I know that she talks about it as a women's college, and there are still professors here who only use she, her pronouns when talking about the student body, which obviously I don't think really fits what Holland's looks like anymore. McMillan, who is cisgender, says Holland's should be a place that welcomes all non-binary and transgender students too. Absolutely, absolutely. I think maybe a school with everything under the sun except for cis men. So no cisgender men. No, thank you. (laughs) If it were up to Holland's professor Lee Ray Costa, the college would admit non-binary students, anyone, she says, whose gender makes them marginalized in society. Costa has taught at Holland's for 20 years, has seen the name of her department change from women's studies to gender and women's studies, has seen the number of non-binary students grow, especially within the last five years or so. We see a lot more fluidity, so people moving along a spectrum and not feeling like they have to be fixed in one place, and exploring. As to the fear that something will get lost or diluted if the door to women's colleges is opened too wide? That question is, to me, it's rooted in this either-or binary of like, it's either for women or it's not for them. And I reject that binary. I don't think it needs to be an either-or kind of question. Hi, my name is M. Miller. I use they, them pronouns. I am a senior, and I am from Amelia, Virginia. Miller will often serve as a sounding board for younger students who want to try out new pronouns or a new name. 
there's kind of this like wading pool area where you kind of just dip your toes in and you see how you feel about it and then you go further. Miller was a sophomore when the Holland's Board of Trustees updated its admissions policy in 2019, adding the new language that specifically excludes non-binary applicants. Miller says once you're on campus, Holland's feels inclusive. Students and faculty embrace gender diversity, but there's a disconnect with the admissions policy and that doesn't sit well. It makes me feel ignored. And it almost feels like I'm battling against what Holland's board of trustees has kind of placed as this looming cloud over students at Holland's. I put that concern to the chair of Holland's board, Alexandra Trower. I have a lot of compassion and empathy for those feelings, but we are a women's institution. Not just a historically women's college, Trower says, but a present women's college. Important, she says, at a time when women have still not achieved equity. I very much appreciate that students may have a different definition or desire to have us be in a different place. But we're very clear and open about what our mission is. And people have a choice about where they go to university. Trower says it's possible the board's thinking on this will evolve. That's the message, too, from Holland's new president, Mary Dana Hinton. You've heard students say that they feel unseen or invisible, and that's really hard. And I don't think it's unexpected that we will continue to listen and and learn and reassess the policy as needed. Overshadowing this discussion is the fact that a dozen historically women's colleges have either closed or gone co-ed in the last seven years, faced with declining enrollment or financial trouble. Each school trying to figure out how to adapt in a more gender-fluid world. Melissa Block, NPR News, Roanoke, Virginia. Figure a hundred a month for clothes and shoes. Figure two hundred. I want to look good. <laughs> the pioneering fashion journalist Andre Leon Talley has died at the age of 73. He was the first black creative director of Vogue at a time when few African-Americans held senior positions in the industry. Charlotte Gallagher looks back at his life. Andre Leon Talley didn't just break glass ceilings, he smashed them. His love of fashion started at a young age. He grew up in the segregated US South and was a child when he first picked up Vogue magazine. I would go and buy Vogue across town at a newsstand every Sunday after church and I would have to walk through the white neighbourhood to get to this newsstand. And very often, you know, white people in cars would throw stones at me. But it didn't stop me from going to buy Vogue magazine and it didn't stop my faith in myself to pursue my dream. He worked for Andy Warhol at the New York Times and Women's Wear Daily before joining Vogue. In 1988, he was appointed its creative director before becoming editor-at-large. He nurtured black designers and pushed labels to embrace diversity on the catwalk. He was also close friends with designers like Yves Saint Laurent, Karl Lagerfeld and Oscar de la Renta. At 1.98 metres tall, André Leon Talley was a towering figure. 
His personal style was flamboyant, flowing capes, kimonos and kaftans made from opulent fabrics. His position as an American fashion institution was cemented when Barack and Michelle Obama appointed him as their presidential stylist. But he said the best moment of his life was when France honoured him with one of their most prestigious awards for his contribution to the arts there. The fashion world has been paying tribute to André Leon Talley. The first black editor of British Vogue, Edward Ennefel, wrote on Instagram, Without you, there would be no me. And I told him, we can't use, we can't use this with our students. And he asked me, what do you want to do with them? And I said, well, take them out to the playground, which was just a dirt playground, and we'll burn, we'll burn the whole box. And we did. I'm sure that was the only time in your life you wanted to burn books. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I love books. <laughs> Tonight, a controversial book taken out of Rova schools will remain out of the classrooms. The board decided the book, The Hate You Give, should not be part of any lesson plan until it's fully reviewed by the community and the schools. It comes after some parents challenged the board's decision last November in closed session to remove the book. As News H Jenna Webster now reports tonight, it's created a split in the district. The Hate You Give follows the story of a 16-year-old black girl as she deals with the issues of systemic racism and police brutality. But parents say it's not the topic that bothers them, but the language. We, as the parents of the kids in the class, do not agree with the language in the book being used and taught in the classroom. One parent printing out a chapter and underlining all the swear words. The book, The Hate You Give, has 89 instances of the F word. That is not counting all the other swear words. They say it's too mature for freshmen to read in English class. It would be much more appropriate in an advanced literature class for juniors and seniors. But others don't buy that the issue is language alone. I feel that that is a cover for their real fears, and that is that it's racially sensitive. The language in this book is not the problem, but the exposure of racism and diversity and inclusivity being mentioned frightens many parents. Rova senior Abigail Lee pointing out to the board the need for this predominantly white school to teach diversity. The world has diversity. Anywhere your child goes, they will see diversity. While others say the content discussed in the book is too important to lose. I keep telling my kids, look past the language and see what's actually being said. Like so it. many kids read this for pleasure and said that it, it was amazing and it touched them and it woke them up to just different perspectives that they had never thought of before. For them, when you censor one book, what else is the Rova School Board going to censor? In Oneida, Jenna Webster, WQAD, News 8. The novel, The Hate You Give, was first banned by a Texas school district in 2017, but later returned to the shelves. It's been on the list as one of the most challenged books in American schools. Rova board members say they didn't know it was being used by some teachers until parents subjected. White supremacy is the sickness. People around the world have been told to make huge sacrifices during this pandemic. Stay at home lose income and be separated from loved ones as they die. So when it's suspected political leaders are not sticking to the lockdown rules themselves, it rankles and angers people a lot. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has come under further pressure today after facing MPs in Parliament over allegations that parties at his residence broke Covid rules. One Conservative MP has defected to the Labour Party, whilst others have submitted letters of no confidence. And a couple of hours before we recorded this podcast, a senior Conservative MP, David Davis, said this. I expect my leaders 
to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yesterday, he did the opposite of that. So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him of Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. Rob Watson was listening to the debate. So what impact will it all have on the Prime Minister? I think it's hugely significant. Uh, David Davis is a senior figure in the Conservative Party. I think in some ways he probably speaks for what might be called a lot of the old-timers. I don't think Mr Davis would mind that. Uh, And if you think about it, that's come on top as well of someone at the opposite end of the Conservative Party, if you like, someone who was drawn in and the great success that Boris Johnson had in 2019, switching sides at the start of Prime Minister's questions to defect to the opposition Labour Party. So if you think about it, he's sort of getting it in the neck from old and from new. So uh, really significant developments there. I mean, earlier, Boris Johnson had said, look, uh, we've got to wait for this inquiry. This is a long-awaited inquiry into what happened, what, who did what, when, with regards to these gatherings at Downing Street. Let's hear a little bit about uh, what he had to say. It is for the inquiry to, to come forward uh, with uh, an explanation of what happened. And we, I'm afraid he simply, he simply must wait. But he asked about my staff. Mr. Speaker, he asked, he asked about uh, my staff and what my staff are doing and what, and what they uh, have told me. And I can tell him, Mr. Speaker, that they have taken decisions throughout this pandemic uh, that, that, he has, that he has opposed. So, Rob, no surprise there. He's trying to deflect attention onto more comfortable ground there, strong economic figures, that kind of thing. Uh, how do you think this, the whole uh, event of today and the comments made, though, are going to cut through with the public? Well, as you say, classic Boris Johnson, indeed the the classic way of defending in politics, right? You try and switch the subject, bring things back to the present, and you go on the attack against the opposition and say, hey, look what a great job I've done. I, I mean, essentially, to answer your question, I mean, what he's doing is trying to say to Conservative MPs, look, get a grip, look at the bigger picture. The Labour Party... Still, we don't think they'd be as good a government as us. Hold your nerve. You know, we're doing other things. Will it work? I have absolutely no idea. Is he really up against it? You betcha. But that is the case he's trying to make. And he's trying to make it to a very specific group of people, the 359 other Conservative MPs who get to say, to decide whether he stays or goes. And uh, where does this go from here now? Uh, the number of people that need to make that decision, it, we, we could find out within the coming hours, days? Two things to watch out, right? Uh, Under the Conservative Party's leadership rules, if 54 of them, 54 MPs, say they want a vote of no confidence, that triggers it, and that would happen very quickly. So we wait to see, do we get those 54 letters, and do we get them before the next staging post, which is this report coming out by the independent sort of bureaucrats, which we're expecting next week. Can he survive until then? What happens when that report comes out? Does Does it save him or does it bury him? That was Rob Watson. Mm. When I heard black people, the first time I heard a black people say that in relation to what happened with uh, Mr. Davis, I remembered Mm. when they kept reporting the record numbers of ammunition sales when President Obama became president. Mm -hmm. Man, those white, exactly what you said. They are stocked up. They are stocked up. They are ready. I mean, that is something that they love. It's mass shootings. Last month, a Nashville police officer shot and injured a 20-year-old. The officer fired when the man was taking his belongings out of a car, including a gun. 
This incident raises questions about how officers are trained to interact with the many, many, many people in this country who own guns. The presence of a gun on the scene raises the risk for people even when nobody aims it. The story lasts about four minutes, and it does include sounds from police body cameras that some would find disturbing. Samantha Max of our member station WPLN reports. Last January, it was Lamont Witherspoon, Nika Holbert in March, Jacob Griffin in May, Antonio King in August, and Adrian Cameron in September. Last month, an officer shot and wounded Rod Reed. 2021 far surpassed the typical number of yearly shootings by Nashville police. In seven of the ten cases, the person who got shot had a gun. Sometimes they were holding a firearm from the start. But in other incidents, the encounter started calm. Then, the presence of a gun escalated the situation. Ma'am! Put the gun down! Put the gun down! Where's the gun? Where's Where's the gun? gun? Drop the weapon! Drop it now! Drop the weapon! Then you gotta be be trained well enough to deal with people that have guns. Because you can't say... The minute you touch it, I'm going to shoot you. If you already thought, if you knew I had it, then I got to deal with you accordingly. Rodney Reed wants the Nashville Police Department to rethink the way it trains officers to deal with people who have guns. Reed's son, Rod, was shot in the legs last month during a brief encounter with an officer at the scene of a car crash. Rod was getting his things out of the passenger side of a car. An officer, Byron Bolter, had just pulled up to the scene. He told Rod to leave his stuff behind. Go, go ahead and go, man. But Rod kept reaching toward the dashboard where there was a gun. Bolter immediately fired. Stop, stop, stop. Then Rod was on the ground screaming in pain. Bolter told him to put his hands up. He tried to assure Rod and said it would be okay. And he asked the 20-year-old why he grabbed for the gun. Why'd you reach for a kid? No, I was trying to get it out the car, sir. I know, man. Ah. The Metro Nashville Police Department's use of force training teaches officers that guns pose a threat. They're repeatedly told to be ready to fire to protect themselves and others before someone else can pull the trigger. In Tennessee, the chances of encountering someone with a firearm are high. Data show yearly gun purchases have risen dramatically in the past decade. The same trend holds true on a national level. The FBI conducted about 16 million background checks for gun purchases in 2011. Last year, that number had more than doubled to nearly 39 million. And that's not even including private sales without a background check. I think it's a troubling, troubling situation for you know, police officers. Daniel Nagin is a public policy professor at Carnegie Mellon University who researches the criminal justice system. In 2020, he published a study that found states with a higher prevalence of guns had higher rates of deadly shootings by police. Last year, Tennessee joined a list of more than 20 states that have made it legal for almost any adult to carry a gun without even needing a permit. Many law enforcement officials have urged legislators not to pass these bills. More guns on the streets can make their jobs harder. They are frequently called upon to enter into dangerous situations um, and somebody having a firearm or brandishing it is, I think, almost the definition of an example of a, a dangerous uh, situation. A police spokesperson says officers receive extensive training to deal with people who are armed and that they have learned about Tennessee's new constitutional carry statute, which took effect in July. The department also says it reviews each shooting and considers changes to its curriculum. But any changes will come too late for Rodney Reed's son. Who is recovering from gunshot wounds in both legs. You can't come in saying, 
whoever got a gun, if they if they budge the wrong way, I'm going to shoot them. When you tell them they can have the gun. Reed's son was a year too young to legally own a gun in Tennessee, and he's out on bond now after being arrested. But Reed also has questions about how the officer who shot his son acted. Reed says he's talked to his son about what to do if police pull him over, that there's a chance he could get shot. And now that there has been a shooting, he says he's just grateful his son is alive. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max in Nashville. It's up to you, New York, New York, New York. To New York now, where another violent incident took place last night. A girl, 11 months old, was shot while sitting in a parked car in the Bronx. She's in critical condition. And New York City's new mayor, Eric Adams, has vowed to put an end to the increase in gun violence. Among the strategies, reinstating a controversial part of the police, the plainclothes unit, an anti-crime street unit with officers dressed as civilians. The unit was dismantled in 2020 after years of criticism for its use of force against people of color. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports. This time, it's going to be different. That's the message Eric Adams has delivered when he talks about reinstating the plainclothes police. We're going to use precision policing to identify the gang members, the crews. We're going to target them. For many New Yorkers, this is a welcome response to the shootings, which feel out of control. But the plainclothes police are also a sensitive subject here. They're associated with the stop-and-frisk era, when police stopped and searched people they found suspicious. The anti-crime unit was primarily tasked with doing these stops, and they would do them violently. Jem Borchetta is a managing director at the legal nonprofit Bronx Defenders. 2011 was the peak of the stop-and-frisk era, and YPD stopped over 680,000 people. Only 9% of them were white, and 88% hadn't committed any crimes. NYPD's use of stop and frisk was later ruled unconstitutional. Many in law enforcement also saw its implementation as problematic. Professor Keith Ross at John Jay College is a former NYPD plainclothes officer. He says there was an excessive emphasis on productivity, on constantly making arrests. I think most patrol officers who worked during then If they're going to be honest, they're all going to say they felt that pressure. One big question about these policies is, did they work? In 2011, from over 680,000 NYPD stops, 780 guns were seized. A study by NYU and Columbia found there was a small reduction in crime. And that leads to another question. What was the cost? Well, I'm Amadou Diallo's mom. And the search crime unit was responsible for robbing my son's life. In 1999, Amadou Diallo was stopped by plainclothes police. They said he fit the description of a rapist. He was shot 41 times and killed. Officers said he was reaching for a gun. He didn't have a gun. He was reaching for his wallet. All officers were later acquitted. Since then, there were numerous deaths involving plainclothes police. Eric Garner, Sean Bell, Sahid Vassal. In 2020, the unit was disbanded amidst widespread protests over police brutality. Kadia Tudialo says bringing it back now is wrong. The mayor, I wanted to call him on not just being a mayor, 
but to be a son, to be a son, to be a father, to understand. Mayor Adams has reminded people that when he was in the NYPD, he spoke out against brutality against people of color. And he's promised that this will be a different plainclothes unit. They will wear body cameras. They will focus on criminals. There will be consequences for police who overstep. Diallo doesn't buy it. You cannot just change, rebrand and retrain people who have been doing something not good. She understands the grief of the parents who've lost children to the recent rise in shootings in the city. She just worries that New Yorkers, especially New Yorkers of color, are being asked to make a choice between who does the shooting. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Earlier this week, the prosecutor in Crawford County, Missouri, made an announcement. He said he would not bring charges against a man who'd killed his neighbor in a bourbon, Missouri trailer park. The man who'd been killed is 28-year-old Justin King. He'd previously lived in St. Louis. He was black. And the man who shot him is white. The case has gained attention from the Missouri chapter of the NAACP and other civil rights activists. They say the failure to file charges in this case is part of a pattern of black men being killed with impunity in rural Missouri. And joining us now with more on this case is the Reverend Daryl Gray. He is a civil rights activist and a minister based in St. Louis. Reverend Gray, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you, particularly in the midst of all this plexiglass and COVID stuff, but uh, thank you for your interest in this. I know that the family is listening uh, and the family appreciates the fact that people want to know, want to get more information about this. And I understand a lot of this family, this is a St. Louis family. What was Justin King doing in in, uh, Crawford County? He went down there to to be with his daughter. He has an eight-year-old daughter uh, and uh, he's that kind of father. Uh, He's not an absentee dad. He's not a deadbeat dad. He was a good father. As a matter of fact, the day that he was killed, uh, his daughter was with him uh, in the trailer. Oh, my. Yeah, her daughter right across the street. And so this has been very traumatic, uh, obviously, for the daughter. It's been traumatic uh, for Mama Eva and and, uh, Father John, uh, who had to sit in on this. um, I I mean, honestly, a, a farce, a sham of an inquiry and had to sit through it and listen uh, to people basically seemingly justify uh, the shooter versus seeking justice for the person that had been killed and had to listen to that. I mean, we felt it went bad from the very beginning. We saw the the panel, six people. And uh, you're talking here about the coroner's inquest. This is a panel of six citizens put together to assess this case, a very unusual procedural move here. Exactly. But the, the, the problem was, the, the, was it a, a coroner's inquest? It couldn't have been because the sheriff selected the, the panel. It was the sheriff whose office did the investigation. It was the sheriff whose office provided the quote-unquote evidence. And now the sheriff is asking his friends uh, to be on a panel to make a determination on, on, on his work and the work of his department. The, so this is not like a jury where this is a, a totally random selection and citizens are getting their turn and then they're being vetted. This is the sheriff picks six people. Exactly. And, and that was the first thing we questioned. If it is a coroner's inquest, why didn't the coroner pick the panel? Why the, why the sheriff? The sheriff obviously has uh, some motivation on, on making sure that what he has presented 
from his department uh, is substantiated, is corroborated, and and that's what happened. You had one one black uh, juror who's a Facebook friend of the sheriff's, and, and so and so from so this the is all very, very beginning. Very unusual. It, it is extremely unusual, especially, uh, you know, with the tension throughout our country, the fact that as, as Nimrod Chapel, our state NAACP president, indicated, this is not the first suspicious death of black men uh, by the hands of white men in this state. And so you would think that people would want to get it right. We felt that the coroner uh, believed that they had to do something because of the kind of attention that this has been getting. But from the very first witness, who was the sheriff, the sheriff said when he got the call and pulled up, he saw Justin laying on the ground, leaning against Eric Barber's car. The sheriff said he then grabbed Justin's right arm and drug him out of the way. He, mo- he moved the body? He moved the body. He said it on the stand. This is the sheriff who gets to the scene, sees Justin on the ground, and drags him by his right arm. He moves. See, already there's... In, in my mind, you, you, you've contaminated evidence. You've yeah. contaminated a crime scene, and you're the sheriff. And, and we went through a list of observations throughout the, the whole day. They, and, and remember, Gray, before we get yeah. into too much about the inquest, yeah. I do want to set the scene for people who haven't read the media coverage about this case and don't even understand what happened between these two men. So Justin King, he's living in a trailer there in Crawford County, Missouri. Again, this is about, it's a short drive west on I-44 from here. It's before you get to Rolla. Right. So he's living there to be close to his daughter. He had gone over to a neighbor's house. And these these two were friends. Yes. They, they had a good relationship. Um, and they had a a positive interaction that morning. Apparently, uh, one shared a joint with the other. This is a a positive friendship here, um, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, So what happened then right before leading up to this shooting? And and that's an excellent question. And and that is the question that we have not gotten an answer to. Eric Barber was, I I wouldn't even say he was interviewed or interrogated. We saw the, the videotape of him in the Uh, in the jail, and the police officer asked Eric Barber, the shooter, tell us what happened. And so for about 15 or 20 minutes, Eric Barber tells his side of the story, beginning with he and Justin looking for a woman's dogs. Okay. Looking for the dogs, ending up in Justin's trailer, ended up Eric Barber giving Justin a joint. It's all on video. And Justin saying to Eric Barber before Eric left his trailer, I love you, bro. Yeah. And so now you have a video that shows uh, Justin coming, uh, going across the street, going to Eric's trailer. The prosecutor and the police contend he went there angry, but there's no video, there's no audio. So you're saying that you've determined by his body language that he was angry. There's nothing to verify mm-hmm. that Justin was angry. Yes, he went over to the trailer that we know. There was a girlfriend in the trailer. Her testimony was not was not uh, uh, put into evidence. Uh, obviously, the the daughter was in the trailer. No testimony put into evidence. So and, and nobody has explained nobody. what his state of mind was as he returned to this trailer with this man that he'd gotten a joint from. Friendly. Exactly. And he he went there only wearing pajama pants. Okay. No shirt. No shoes. Pajama pants. So this suggests this was a casual visit of some sort. It, it and, and and listen. Even if we say it was beyond casual, let's let's say hypothetically that uh, Justin was upset. 
There's nothing to to show, no evidence to show that he was angry to the degree that Eric Barber's life would have been threatened. He had no weapons. He had he had nothing. In his, he had he had no knife, gun, rock, sticks, bricks, nothing. And he knew Eric Barber. He knew Eric Barber had 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 a gun. Eric Barber, by the evidence that witnesses gave at the inquiry, indicated that the whole trailer park knew that Eric Barber was in possession of at least a gun because he had shown this gun. I'm glad you brought this up because the Post-Dispatch had a good in-depth story about this case. They reported this, quote, other trailer park residents said they did not believe the events as described by the neighbor. Again, this is the neighbor charged in the shooting, uh, though none who has not been charged in the shooting, the neighbor that we know fired the gun, um, though none witnessed the shooting. All the neighbors said they liked Justin King. Many said they did not trust the neighbor. They described incidents when he showed them his gun and made others uncomfortable in social situations. Three residents who were near the trailer after hearing gunshots testified that Justin King said, I thought we were friends as he lay on the driveway. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Three residents who were near the trailer after hearing gunshots testified that Justin King said, I thought we were friends as he lay on the driveway. That, again, is from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch account of this. So other people raise concerns about this guy and his gun. Right. And and, and during and, and that's what I guess was so s- shocking to us, that the, the panel didn't ask questions. They They, they didn't ask, well... We only have one side of this story. Why didn't you interrogate? Why really didn't you push Eric Barber about uh, the joint that he gave him? Uh, you, you talked about uh, just, uh, uh, Justin's toxicology report, but you didn't talk about Eric Barber's toxicology report. You, there was no mention of, of, of if he had alcohol in his system, if he had drugs in his system, although he admitted having a bag of, of, of weed. He admitted drinking that day. So he, he admitted all these things, but then you don't provide the toxicology report, but you provide Justin's toxicology report, which did indicate uh, on behalf of uh, uh, Justin that it did not raise to the level of being alarming or concerning, but you still provided it. You, you didn't provide pictures of the inside of the house. You didn't provide pictures of the television that was allegedly thrown or the television that was destroyed. You didn't provide pictures of the door, which was allegedly beat down. You didn't provide any of this information and none of the panelists asked. Hmm. And so all of those things, uh, you said you took a blood test uh, of Eric Barber. From the shooter. From the shooter. But you don't reveal the results of that blood test. And so all of these things, they, they say that supposedly when Justin came into the house, uh, supposedly he went back into Eric's bedroom. Eric said that he was concerned because Eric said he had guns back in the bedroom. So he got his gun and put it in his pocket. Well, if you were that concerned, why would you put your gun in your pocket? These are the words of Eric Barber. Why would you put your gun in your pocket? You see uh, Justin coming back out of the room. There's nothing in his hand. He's got pajama pants on. You say, Eric Barber said, there were no punches thrown. Well, then where's the struggle? Eric Barber said, when Justin brushed me on my shoulder with his shoulder, the, the, Eric Barber raised up his shirt at the in, quote unquote interrogation and showed no bruises, no, 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 no scars, no anything. So where's the struggle? Where is the concern about 
you being threatened to the point where you shoot somebody not once, not twice, but three times. First in the leg, second in the head, and the third shot, the kill shot in the chest as Justin is down. So they don't show pictures of trajectory. They don't show pictures of the, the porch where they allegedly struggled. The porch that is uh, probably four by five. A tiny little porch. A tiny porch cluttered with uh, an, old, an old chair and everything. So, and the, the, the pictures that we saw, the, the video that we saw could not definitively show struggle. Mm-hmm. It couldn't, even with the FBI trying to brighten it. And so what we're saying is this was not a thorough investigation. And so you have a lot of concerns about this inquest, and yet within a day of the inquest saying, hey, we found this was justified, we don't recommend charges here, the prosecuting attorney, this is David Smith of Crawford County, um, came out and said he was not going to bring charges. He said this, quote, if an aggressor attempts to enter, enters, and or remains after entering private property without the consent of a defender who is lawfully occupying that private property, the defender is permitted to use any level of force, including deadly force, to defend themselves so long long as the defender has a reasonable belief that the aggressor is using or is about to use any level of unlawful force upon them. The law additionally provides that when upon their private property, a defender has no duty to retreat from the aggressor. He's quoting Missouri law right. in saying this here. Missouri's castle doctrine does allow for deadly force against intruders. Is maybe the problem here Missouri law versus it its application? It, it, it's both. But I think that even in the instructions to the jury, when you talk about any reasonable person, we don't know what state of mind Eric Barber was in. We don't have the toxicology report. We did not have a thorough investigation or interrogation. Eric Barber, out of his own mouth, said, Justin was my, we were friendly. We had hung out. We've done all of this. So what, what happened between Eric Barber and Justin to the point of this person, unarmed person, being killed. So, yes, you're absolutely right. The Castle Doctrine is something that we do need to, 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 to revisit. We do. It's the most strict Castle Doctrine in the country. Mm-hmm. It is. We know that. But when you use the word any reasonable person, then that goes to somebody's mental state. What about Eric Barber's mental state? Did he have a criminal record? We submit that he did. He, he had been charged with assaulting someone. But, but that wasn't brought up in the inquest. Who Eric Barber was, the only thing that the prosecutor did was to provide evidence to justify Eric Barber's story, the only witness who is alive. Was, was Justin in there to, to, to threaten to, to kill this man? I submit in pajama pants, no shirt, no weapon, and knowing that Eric Barber was armed, mm-hmm. no. And at what point, as I said, if, I'm, if, if I honestly believe that my life is threatened, I would not put my gun in my pocket. So you have some huge concerns about how this has been handled to this point. What would you like to see? I mean, the prosecuting attorney says he's not going to pursue this. This is his jurisdiction. Do you want to see the feds get involved? We, we've already sent a letter. We sent a letter yesterday to the U.S. attorney uh, asking for them to, to intervene, for them to look at this case. 
I know that uh, Rod Chappell, our state NAACP president, has reached out to the state attorney general. We didn't have any confidence in the local prosecutor in the beginning. You, you can't be too surprised by this inquest and based on comments you made even before that. And we're not. And, and you know what? It, it's, it's, it's sad because you're absolutely right. Going into this, uh, we didn't believe that there would be justice uh, for Justin. Going into this, uh, the family lawyer still has not received uh, the, the evidence packet from the prosecutor it, to this date. And this, this uh, shooting happened in November. In November, and the family has not been able to view. The lawyer has not been able to view. It has been held back by the prosecutor even up to today. And so we believe uh, that Justin's civil rights have been violated. We believe that uh, that uh, uh, Eric Barber took his life unnecessarily. Uh, we believe that that third shot, that kill shot, er, Justin is down. He shot twice. He's down. He's down. Why? Why kill him? He could have stopped shooting at stopped that point. At that point. And so, I think that those are the things that have to be discussed. Those are the things that have to be investigated. Eric Barber's state of mind should be in question. That's what should be in question. So there's one more thing I want to get to in our final couple minutes here today, and that is that you believe this is part of a pattern, not a pattern on the part of this particular person who fired the gun, but a pattern when it comes to black men in rural Missouri. Don, Don, uh, Dante Martin, Dante Martin in, uh, in Madison County uh, goes to a party, young black, uh, black high school football player from St. Louis County goes to a party in Madison County. Only black guy there ends up uh, supposedly, they said he shot himself. They said he shot himself. Uh, the father, the person that owned the house, uh, about racist, has made racist comments. Uh, that came up publicly, but Dante's dead, and they said it was suicide. Uh, you've got Troy Sanders, uh, uh, who uh, down in uh, Mississippi County, he, I mean, he, he stops and asks the police for help, and he ends up dead. They finally settled it. But he ends up dead. Uh, you've got another young man uh, at the uh, uh, Mississippi County uh, Jail just a couple of months ago. He's asking for help. Uh, he's sick. The, the jailers, the sheriff there who's responsible for the jail, does not get him medical attention, and he dies in that jail. This is Missouri. This is what, this is what is happening. But it's not the only one. What, what was it, last year, uh, down on the south side of town, where black guy... Uh, and, and, and his white girlfriend are arguing. White guy goes into his house, gets his gun, takes a stance, and shoots the guy in the head. In the head, outside. Yeah. This is what. This is this is what we're dealing with, and 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 what we're saying is that that there's a climate of vigilante justice. White men against black men, uh, and the law is protecting them. The law is justifying them. Uh, justifying it, the, the, the sheriff, in all of these cases, you know, in, in all of these cases, we don't have a lot of hope. I mean, we go into an inquest, we go into an inquiry, we go into court, and we don't have a lot of hope, but we keep on fighting. But the pattern is out there. It's real for us. It's happening for us. And we are going to challenge it. And Biden said that his DOJ is going to be different from the last president, particularly as it relates to the Civil Rights Division. Well, then prove it. Come into Missouri and take a look at the murders that have taken place, black men at the hands of white men. Take a look at it. Bring your Civil Rights Division here. Bring, you have a U.S. attorney here. Let her do her job. 
Man, this shit worse than cancer like a fucking disease Living a nightmare, they telling his dream Look what they did to Martin Luther, bullet holes in our kings And they wonder why we never believe And they wonder why we never will leave Nigga, we poor Young niggas worn about that corner store But the chinks on that And you claiming that's your block Who you think on that Quick sand in the hood and we gonna sink on that You should think on that Poison water out in Flint They let them little babies drink on that They don't care about us Thanks for staying with us here at 4.30. I'm Kevin Nathan. A Bridgeport family is still looking for answers after their daughter was found dead inside her apartment nearly a month ago. NBC Connecticut's Dominique Moody spoke with the family and their attorney. Dominique joins us live now from Bridgeport. Dominique? Kevin, hurt and anger, the best way to describe the emotions from Lauren Smith Fields' family. You can see right here there is still a growing memorial for her, and we know that the family is still calling for justice, and they are still asking police for answers after they, after they continue to deal with the loss of their loved one. I see her in everything I do. Everything I do, I see her. Chantel Fields and her family are still overcome with emotion a month after their daughter and sister, Lauren Smith Fields, was found inside her Bridgeport apartment. I literally have PTSD when I see other beautiful black women because of my sister, how what happened to her. I literally have PTSD when I see other beautiful black women because of my sister, how what happened to her. Before her death, Lauren was a student at Norwalk Community College and had her own business. The family says on December 13th, that all changed when they learned she died. Bridgeport police say they received a call about an untimely death on December 12th and found Lauren's body inside her apartment. The family says they found out about her death through the landlord. They say they had to contact police to get answers about Lauren's case, but say after they continued to inquire about the investigation, they say they started having issues with the detective on the case. He told me directly on the phone, stop calling me and hung up in my face. Right. Exactly. Like, it was just total disrespect. Exactly. Like our family's going through grief. The way how they talked to me, the way how they talked to my family, the way how they treated my daughter, they treated her like she was nobody, like she was not important. Since those issues, the family has hired attorney Darnell Crossland in an effort to get answers and justice for Lauren. We want an independent investigation by an independent state agency uh, or federal agency to look into this. And we want DOJ, like in D.C., when they have to step in and, and deal with uh, Mike Brown. In a statement to NBC Connecticut, the city's police department says the Bridgeport Police Department offers its sincerest condolences to the family and friends of Miss Lauren Smith. We encourage anyone with any information to contact police. The family and attorneys say they saw that message but want to know what happened to Lauren. We want justice. We want answers. Yeah. I mean, whatever happened that night, we want to know. And we want to feel like that they care as much as we care. Oh, I never get to touch her again. It's deployable how they treated us. I don't give back my daughter. We did reach out to Connecticut's medical examiner about Lauren's cause of death, and they tell us, quote, her cause of death is pending further studies. Now, the family says they paid their own money for an independent autopsy and are awaiting those results. Police say this investigation is still active. And coming up at 530, we hear from the family and hear what police told them about the man they suspect may have met Lauren the day before she passed away. We're live in Bridgeport. Dominique Moody, NBC Connecticut News. The man, the man race, race class, class genre, genre, and the dilemmas, dilemmas of black manhood. You know what? I tell everybody, I said the only thing I had to fight with was truth. And I won't bite to get that up.
I won't about to give that up. That's something I could control, truth. Well, my name is Howard Dudley. Uh, I grew up out there in the Institute area right out from Kingston. And uh, I love life. I enjoy life and, you know, and I'm a person that come up on the squeak rules and regulations by Wayne and Phyllis Dudley. And you know what? They made rules and they enforced them. I'm a guitarist. I'm a, I'm a guitarist. I started back in elementary school, me and some old guys, and we tried to make it be, but of course we didn't. And so, you know, uh, now I play for my church now, and uh, some of the other guys have passed away, and some of them still living, and and so, uh, you know, I love the guitar music. Well, you know, I just need a pick. I can't get my notes in without my pick. So I just did the best that I could. But you did tone it. You did tone it. And I just love chords, and I just love playing gospel. I, I, now I play, I played in the band years ago, but now I play gospel. I grew up in the church with my mama Ruth was, you stay here, you go to church on Sunday. We all went to church. That was Mama Ruth. When a, a child make such accusations as that, you need to look at, especially when she don't hold a story together. You know, I don't know. I try not to even think about it because it's, it's going to be hurtful. In the early 90s, uh, Howard was charged with a sexual assault of a minor. My name's Joe Neff. I'm an investigative reporter, and I worked at the News and Observer for 25 years, and one of the stories I was lucky enough to do was Howard Dudley. No evidence, no nothing, but just a girl who mother put all this stuff into her head, and, and you know what? It just worked. It just worked. Uh, Amy Moore, that's Howard's daughter, who had accused him of sexually assaulting her. One day, Amy was staying with a relative on her mother's side who was babysitting Amy. Amy's nine, and one day she says, my daddy's nasty. What does that mean, the babysitter said. Well, he had S-E-X with me. Oh. Right now today, I cannot understand how 12 jurors come out and say guilty, no evidence, no absolutely nothing. I, I don't understand that one. And the jury's just looking back and forth. I spoke to uh, some jurors, and one of them told me, we actually believed both of them, and we just decided to go with Amy because the charges were so serious. You had to function with what you got, what you feel comfortable with, you know. So, and, and that, that's what I did. I, I wasn't willing to sit here and say, "I molested my nine-year-old daughter." Oh no, I wasn't. I wasn't going to say that. No way, I was going to say that. And uh, you know, I had no doubt in my mind. They knew I was an innocent man. I had no doubt about it in my mind. Now, before the trial, and I think this is really telling. Before Howard went on trial and a jury was selected, the prosecutor said. If you plead to a lesser charge, indecent liberties, we'll sentence you to probation. Howard said, no, I'm not guilty. I cannot plead to something I didn't do. He could have walked out of court that day in 1992 
and been a free man. Completed his probation after two years, been had a whole life. And he refused in any way to acknowledge any guilt here for the next 23 years. And so, you know, I'm a person that I'm going to make choices that I can live with. And and, and the only good thing about me when I went in prison, I could live, once I learned how to function, I could live with myself. I I mean, I could get up every morning, I could look at myself in the mirror. I didn't didn't walk around with a guilty conscience. I I didn't have none of that because I knew I didn't do anything. They knew I didn't do anything. After I wrote the series, I got a call from uh, Jim Coleman, who runs the Duke Innocent Clinic, and we talked about the case. And he agreed with me. It looks like there's um, not much that can be done for him, but they, the Duke Innocent Clinic worked on the case and finally came up with, A, Howard hadn't had the social service records that would have helped him at trial, and B, Amy's testimony as a child, as a child with cognitive limitations and some emotional turbulence, that her testimony was not set in context. So, and then also how little investigation was done, how little defense work was done by Howard's lawyer. It took them about a decade overall, but they finally got back in court. And so they got investigating the case and It was worse than what they thought it was. But, you know, they saved my life. We have had a relatively good history of looking at suicide in in Native American, American Indian populations, because there's high rates there as well. But specifically Black Americans, the rates have been going up faster than they have in white Americans. But we're recognizing more and more that risk for suicide is up there and increasing for Black Americans, especially Especially younger younger Black males. I was often told that I couldn't have children. So knowing that he came, he's just my miracle child, truly. And I treated him like he was a miracle and that he was loved every single day. The only thing that he ever said he wanted to be since he was a small child, a superhero. That's it. I knew that he was a gift. And that is why he was so exposed to so many things because I have seen the world. I just took my time to see it again through his eyes. Shout out to my family. Love you, Mama. I love you, Daddy. Nah. It really is speaking to the love of my husband and I. I saw him on one day. Seven days later, I saw him again. Seven being the number of completion. Seven uh, being the God's perfect number. But more than anything that I raised him on was, how many times do you forgive your enemy? Seven times 70. Tammy Charles and her son Seven are where we're starting this story. What we originally thought was an isolated incident in a suburban Louisville school district ended up being about so much more. According to the Department of Education, 37% of black kids say that they've been bullied over race, the way they talk, or even a disability. And Seven is one of those kids. We backed up his entire story through videos, school records, and police reports. This is what happened to Seven. The very first thing, a little girl called him a nigger on the bus. And then, fast forward to next week, he's on the bus, and the little girl says, "Um, 
but you know that nigger can't fight. He gets off the bus, runs to his dad and says, Daddy, I got choked on the bus, but don't be mad because I think he has a mental problem. This kid put him in a headlock to the point where students on the bus were screaming for the bus driver to stop. The bus had to be pulled over. What is the district policy involving physical contact? We individualize cases. Um, we have the people in place with our bullying prevention team that can review um, complaints or concerns from families and they work with our schools to resolve those matters. Children are safe in Jefferson County Public Schools. There have been reviews in the past um, for how um, investigations were looked at, and we have done different things to address that and make sure that everything is looked at through a, a, a very thorough lens. I tell parents all the time, don't put your child in that position. So if they're complaining about it, go up to that school and demand that that school do something. I looked to the principal kind of like an overhead, like, did you get my message? And she just gave me this, it's been taken care of. I was at his school average twice a week for lunch. I volunteered for everything. It broke down the false security that I had that I am this involved. They see me this much. And for that, maybe my kid would have some sort of exception I know that I can get it out of my mind and tomorrow's like a better day so I can still make friends with him. 77 days of the first time my son was bullied to the day he died. 77 days in between there. This is why my son is dead. I said, well, what did the teacher say? And he said, well, I want you to tell her to stop. And she said, well, how can I help her if your mom has called the principal and the principal's talked to her mom and if your mom can't do it and the principal can't do it, what makes you think that I, that I can stop her? And besides seven, nobody likes to tattletale. He died of being bullied to death. Wow, my kid. This idea when you're young, developmentally, you may not understand the permanency of suicide. I don't think sometimes that kids understand there's no coming back from that. This is much younger children. People always say black people don't do that. Yes, here's a picture. I do think black parents in particular, we try to educate our kids about what it means to be black and how people are going to engage you in the world. I don't know that we're able to give them the full extent and teach them to the full degree of what those struggles are going to be like. What parent expects to have to have a race conversation with a child and the child is five, six years old? I never took the time to teach my son about racial differences, racial inequalities. I never did that because he was 10. I want this little boy to be a little boy. <laughs> Come on, seven.
I went downstairs because he was so funny. He was such a jokester. And then, cause at this point I'm mad like, boy, where you hiding at, you know? So something said, look over my shoulder in his room. And there my baby was. But it's back to me. I grab him around his waist and I say, boy, why would you do this? And I remember saying out loud, God, why my son? Why my son? And I heard, just as clear as I'm talking to you, a very nonchalantly put, I gave my son. I promise you, the words that I heard. He was my special child. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, January 22, 2022. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have observations. Questions, observations, suggestions, the number 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. 7300 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate the context of white supremacy if we make it to February 21 of this year 13 years that we've been on the program justice co-hosted right here for a number of years started out at 10 years old I think they said Seven Bridges was 10 years old there was a reason for that there was tremendous opposition you can listen in the archives and hear uh, white people and non-white people get upset gripe complain we're trying to have a serious conversation about racism. What are you doing having a 10-year-old on the line? What are you doing have a 10-year-old on the discussion? That told you that Gus was lame. He does a whole lot of lame things. But then he's going to sit here and have some child here playing around. This is so stupid. Lots of that. People would email for years. Oh, my 
God, what do you have, Justice? She's wasting time. I'm trying to hear Dr. Wells in, and I'm trying to hear Mr. Fuller and Timothy Wise and whoever else is going to be on the program. And you're sitting here horsing around, messing around with some 10-year-old on the line. Like, what is the problem? That right there is exactly one of the main. There were many, but that right there was a huge one. It is one thing to just say, oh, talk to your child about racism, talk to your child about racism model. And we've had a number of programs over the years with non-white children talking about racism in films, racism at school, how the pandemic impacted them, food, holidays, lots of different ways that you can bring up white supremacy, racism. Their brain computer works, especially if you give them logic. Oh, yeah. They can be brilliant. You heard uh, Bay Area mom talking about the little fella giving his report on MLK Day. Genius. Just don't lie to him. Their brain computer can handle it. Even at six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Anyway, this is our weekly compensatory call in. Feel free to share if you have thoughts, uh, observations, suggestions. Uh, let's see. Uh, few things before we get to the listeners one we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the cows is constructive hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com once you hit the blog paypal button is in the top right corner Listener supported counter racist radio. You'll see right beneath the PayPal button links for PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, the Cash App address, cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Extraordinary thanks to all the folks who have invested, kept us on the air for a baker's dozen. Hopefully, we have been constructive. Uh, and offered suggestions, accurate information on what white supremacy racism is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white. Getting to some of the reports. Let's see. Number one, I started out with well, one of the first clips was about the importance of sleep near and dear to Gus T. Renegade. I feel, I feel like I've been sleep deprived my entire existence under the system of white supremacy racism from uh, crib to current 2022 uh, but I played at the beginning or the preface to that report was a segment from the X-Files I do confess to being uh, a bit of a sci-fi fan as they call the genre uh, but that segment they were talking about uh, the military having this program uh, and saying hey we can engineer really effective soldiers trained killers if they don't sleep and they said they even saw that there was some sort of correlation between sleep deprivation and increased aggression they do actually have studies where they look at that and saying is there a relationship between not getting adequate rest and increased aggression violence and it seems some studies suggest that there may indeed be a correlation which you know that seems logical that's not a big stretch I know I'm substantially more irritable and less patient uh, when I have not had adequate rest but the double entendre in terms of why that was with me whew. the book club Alice Seabold Lucky if you you know have not been listening 
this might be one to check if you want to read this book on your own or if you want to listen with us in the book club might be more fruitful because if you listen to the book club version with us you'll get to hear how Rick James relates to all of this which is way more entertaining and informative than if you just listen on your or read it on your own uh, but the book club the book club that we read most recently right our sixth installment from this week she mentions Philip Glass white composer I know Philip Glass I've written about Philip Glass at least to me the piece that he's most well known for and he's done a whole lot is Candyman the first time around the score for Candyman which is lauded I don't know it's been 30 years since that movie came out and has even been redone but that score is lauded as one of the best for horror movies all time Alice Siebold mentions Philip Glass and I mean if you've seen Candy what is Candy Man about no count raping black male and just like Alice Siebold the original Candy Man which came out in 1992 Alice Siebold's book was published in 1999 I would big time take the wager that she saw that movie anyway just like Alice Siebold's book Candyman features not one but two castrations of two different black males one of them a black child who loses his penis in Candyman on camera and then the actual black male character and tying it all the way back so how did I get that X-Files segment or why did I pick that one for the sleep deprivation report the character that they're talking about in the X-Files who is this super killer soldier who has not slept in 24 years the greatest killer of them all Augustus Cole played by Tony Todd the one and same who plays the Candyman Woo, lined up Candyman we'll ride out with Candyman and Rick James for the book club we and we just had Candyman remade. We were just about to have Lucky remade. We would have had them like back to back. You could watch the new Candyman, which I guess follows the same trend: no count black male raping white women, basically, and then being castrated and punished for it. And then he has to come back and get vengeance against a white woman forever. And then we could have had Lucky, no count raping black male and vengeance. Lying white women. Thursday book club excited the sleep deprivation report I thought was so important they talked about cognitive impairments if you don't get enough rest they talked about systemic inequality really that's just white supremacy racism impacting all areas including not being able to get adequate rest and I mean hey Mr. Fuller when he talks about use of time and energy that's one right there it's only four and that's one sleeping correctly this system generally is set to make sure that's not going to be possible especially if you're a black person now did you hear how niggardly they got with the wording in that very important report so that was NPR they're talking to Lauren Whitehurst white she said or in her report apparently it says the lack of access to restorative sleep can play a role in creating or exacerbating disparities in cognitive health for communities historically underserved by science and medicine in the US 
So one, we don't have an identif identification of who exactly are these communities that you're talking about. Are you talking about black people? Historically underserved by whom? Do you mean uh, so-called communities that have been historically terrorized by white people? They can give you a whole chunk of nonsense words where they're talking directly about white supremacy, racism. Racism has never been said. White supremacy has never been said. White people have never been identified as the culprits for this lack of sleep. And you're not even identifying that you're talking about the victims being non-white people. Talk about that pussyfooting all the time here on the cows, but in a very important report and the importance of sleep. Now, talking about confusion and nonsense with words, the report they were talking about Holland's College. I can't even say the Commonwealth Governor Coon man because he's not the governor anymore. Oh, well, Commonwealth and VA. And they're talking about all of the changes. This was a woman's college, white woman's college. Uh, and now they're talking about all the changes and maybe we can have non-binary students and all the rest. When they talked about this, number one, they said they were talking to one of the students and she said she felt state safe because there were no fraternities. I said, now that's interesting. The folks generally with the big fraternity houses and causing a ruckus generally are the white fraternities and sororities. Hazing cases and all the rest, alcohol poisoning and terrorize the whole neighborhood. Date rape. If you want to talk about some rape at college, Alice Seabold, that's what we're talking about. Those white fraternities and sororities. But that's not the book that we got. Anywho, so at Hollands, they're talking about all these changes. And, you know, now if you transition, you come to the college, and you identify as a female and then you switch up. And now you say you're non-binary. You don't have to go. You can stay. Wow. Gay rights movement changing everything. Mr. Fuller said that confusion. That would be another one. Now, I thought it was interesting on so many levels. They said within the report. They said that they want to look at this as a type of a space, as a refuge from patriarchal structures. I said, wow. Not that, you know, if the word white should be this, so we can be explicit white patriarchal structure. So are black males, non-white males, wouldn't they also be victims of the white patriarchal structure? Emmett Till and the like, right? seven bridges really wouldn't they be victims so would they get sanctuary at the non-patriarchal structure and I could just hear the hue and cry and Bill Cosby and Clarence Thomas and R. Kelly and Bell Hooks tried to tell us about y'all no sanctuary for the Negro male sorry seven bridges uh, let's see the next uh they said and then they said they wanted this to be a sanctuary for anyone where my gender makes me marginalized. That was another where I doubled down and said, oh, man, that's for sure. Black males, that's got to be I got to be welcome. Me being a black male specifically makes me marginalized. The data is overwhelming. Just on that classification alone, I am in danger anywhere in the world in the system of white supremacy, racism. Am I? Can I get sanctuary? Nope. That's the book, too. Nope. Without sanctuary. Nope. Get on out of here. Bill Cosby. R. Kelly. All the rest of you. 
Let's see. They had the report increasing the number of firearms generally does not make for a safer environment and police for whatever reason they are more nervous more justified they're trained to shoot if they see guns or what have you they had the specific case with Rodney Reed he had his firearm uh, he threw it out of the of the vehicle and the officer shot him I'm of the opinion one I hear that frequently uh, I hear it from a lot of victims that what needs to be done, non-white people need to gather firearms. I think that is absolute nonsense. I think it's nonsense. Whoever says it, every time we've said it, uh, I could give a metaphor, but just to be very explicit, white people are the masters of firearm. At present, we would be going directly, indirectly to individuals classified as white to purchase the firearms, get the ammunition for the firearms, likely to be trained on how to use the firearm, not to mention even if you got a thousand guns, they got a billion guns. They love firearms and mayhem, as Mr. Fuller said. So in my view, no part of replacing white supremacy with justice is going to involve non-white people. Go get more firearms and white people would love that race soldiers at yes they will sell them to you absolutely get as many print out some ghost guns and all the rest of it particularly now that they got drones have at what's the word that I've used a lot over the two 13 years that we've been on the program that is more anachronistic thinking and it's simply not logical you have way too much evidence race soldiers easily handle niggers with guns Robert F. Williams as many of them as you want to stack up with guns no problem anywho if you're going to have the firearm particularly being out and about you have to be super extra codified uh, we had Blacker on the program he talked about Nas would have to be two separate pieces of codification if you are armed you're not at your residence if you call enforcement officials Blacker said field strip the weapon that takes care of that he said that that worked brilliantly the officer gave him a huge uh, commendation and said oh my gosh sir that's such a responsible thing to do and I feel so much safer and blah 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 and all the rest so if you're calling enforcement officials or you know they're going to be called field strip your weapon empty out your clip even and there you go as he said the most you could do is throw the pieces at them now, which probably will happen frequently as well, or also you will have to have code for enforcement officials are called and you you didn't do it. You didn't call them yourself. And so they arrive. You've had no opportunity to field strip your weapon. A lot of this is going to come down to codification about where you carry your gun. If you have it on your person, whew, that is a dice roll because I've seen where that one can go bad. I've seen that one. I think that's uh, the fella in Minnesota, Alton Sterling. Uh, there were several uh, at that time uh, that, you know, where a black person had a firearm and ended up being uh, killed by an enforcement official. If you have it on your person, a holster or whatever it is, whew, you can let them know. Hopefully that's one. Hey, hoping for the best that if I let them know and keep my hands visible at all times, that might be reason right there. Hey, he had a firearm and I know. They've done that one a few times on video, and that's just the way it goes. That's why I said it would have to be super codified if they get called or what have you, and 
you didn't do it, if you have it on your person or situation like with Rodney Reed, he had it on the dashboard, which I don't think is a quality code because they could just easily, oh, my God, he was at, which is what he did. He said, oh, my God, he was reaching forward. Or you're trying to throw it out. Incidentally, I would not be throwing anything. I would not be making any sudden movements. I wouldn't even be throwing my keys, really. An enforcement officer, I'd want to keep my hands super still and visible at all times. No tossing of a weapon. I feel like that's just... I would think there's a very high likelihood of exactly what happened in that segment. You getting shot. You throwing a firearm, even if you're just trying to get it away from you. Man, bad decision. Uh, let's see. Uh, so they talked about New York. I had two different segments, uh, two different points where I was nauseous uh, to my stomach. This was one. Obviously, I've heard about Amadou Diallo. We've talked about Amadou Diallo. Norm Stamper talks about the Amadou Diallo case. He talked about it in his book, Be Black Male. They're super uh, afraid. They couldn't even shoot straight. Either I had forgotten or just hadn't seen it enough that enforcement officers thought Amadou Diallo was a rapist. And then they shot him 41 times. That was the justification, not just a rapist, a serial rapist. And that was the justification for stopping him. Excuse me, shooting him 41 times. Candyman, Lucky, Alice Seabold, the black male rapist core element of white supremacy racism uh let's see <laughs> double down that came right back in the next support so new york they're bringing back the i looked at reading david dinkins book he has an autobiography uh about his time as mayor of new york and it talks a lot about racism i looked about reading that as the next book for the book club but there's no audio book and i'm not reading it so we'll have to see if there is a hidden audio book uh maybe we can look at that very interesting to see uh, how Mary Adams handles all this, especially folks are saying that there's already murmurs about, oh, this nigger mayor is going to be trying to look out for his colored cousins here in New York. Like we we are not pleased with that at all. That's not what we elected him for. If there is an audio book for Mayor Dinkins book, that might be a constructive read. Uh, the segment St. Louis Public Radio on. The murder of Justin King, black male, by Eric Barber, white man. Uh, within the segment, number one, it was not quite to the level of nausea, but they, it had to be said that Justin King was not a deadbeat dad. I don't think. When any other white person, race soldier, whatever it is, any other non-white person, male, female, whatever, I don't think after they have been killed or even died of natural causes, you don't have to come out and like state for the record that this person actually was a responsible parent. blackmail privilege so he wasn't a deadbeat dad and then they continue they say that 
Justin King went to his homie Eric Barber. Eric Barber gave him a joint. Uh, that moron says sobriety would be best. Did anybody question? Did he put something in this joint? Did he instigate this entire ordeal? He has all this cannabis. Is he selling drugs? So he gives his friend a joint. Some idiot, I think, also has been known to say that. Uh, oh, wait a minute. He has two of them, right? I think he said that two of the worst word combinations in the known universe history of language. One of those pairings is white friend. The other pairing whites alcohol. You could sub out any sort of narcotics in there. Oh, you are taking your life in your hands. Metaphor. You are making reckless decisions which could be fatal. They continue. They say they had a positive friendship. We were friends. He even said they had it on video, I guess, given the joint and all this. And the black male Justin King says, Egg Barber, man, I love you, bro. Oh, oh. <laughs> the folks at the, sh the school shooting that happened not that long ago when the shooter came to the door. And he said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm just looking out for you, bro. And they said, oh, he said, bro, that's a red flag, red flag. <laughs> Every time. Just not understanding what it means to be white. So white male Eric Barber shoots him three times, says it's self-defense. Nigra got upset. Nigra leaves the house in his pajamas, not armed. But, you know, he flies into a rage and castle doctrine. He did it in my trailer. So I'm justified in shooting him, shooting him three times. And they said specifically they shot him twice. He drops on the ground kill shot while he's on the ground now, I mean that's like that's not like you called me a coon that's not you owe me $20 that's not you said something about my mom I mean you shoot someone twice they're on the ground you can call the police you can run it's a lot of things and then you gotta finish them Nausea moment number one, three witnesses, they said that they heard him say, I thought we were friends as he lay on the ground dying. Those are my last words as a black male in a system of white supremacy, my white bro has just given me a joint I guess that's my cigarette right if I'm on death row right I mean that's what I said he just planned all this so he gives me my cigarette like I'm on death row prepared for my execution and then wham three times and my dying words 
I thought we were friends. <sighs> Blackmail privilege. And all of this is justified. Castle doctrine, no murder here, no problem. They don't even do the toxicology on the white man. Imagine that. You're a black guy. You shoot and kill a white person. Shoot him three times. They don't even do a toxicology. And you got cannabis on the property. It's not legal in Missouri. They don't even do a toxicology on you? Interestingly, the dying words of the black male, I thought we were friends. The white man said we were friendly. I thought that was a hugely important distinction. Almost like when they say the difference, I am a Jew as opposed to Jewish. You can be friendly with someone who is not your friend. You can be friendly with someone you intend to kill. Within the same report, the white reporter who did some giggling there, she said, you say that this is a part of a larger pattern. We start getting names. I'm sure everybody knows all these names and cases because of black male privilege. So we all knew every nugget and detail about Deontay Martin, right? Everybody heard about that case, right? This wasn't your first time hearing that, right? Black male privilege because they mentioned every black male who's a victim of racism, right? Especially if they get killed by a white person. Old Deontay Martin, just for the rehash, they said Deontay Martin was the only black guy at the party. Didn't we just have Henry in Chicago? Attempted black parent. He said, I tell my children, if you go to an event and you are the only black person there, leave immediately. Genius parenting right there. Deontay Martin, only black guy at the party. Whoops, somehow he's ended up dead. Oh, we'll just say a suicide. They said the white father, owner of the house where Mr. Martin died. Well, he was a child, but I mean, uh, known racist views. I don't even hear that about a white person. I mean, you have to be like David Duke or have clan paraphernalia for them to say that this is a white person who was known to have racist views. And then they added on to the list with more names of black people died suspiciously called it white vigilantism in Missouri. Who would have thought? The next report Lauren Smith feels died under suspicious circumstances with no help from enforcement officials said her family found out from a landlord. Now you want to say tacky. Lauren Smith field her brother said I have PTSD every time I see a beautiful black female I'm reminded of my sister. They had to go and investigate and say who was the last person that she had plans to meet with who saw her that was the cowbell ring right there I think that was another one listener shared that report with me she said the same thing that I just said sobriety would be best 
And then the cowbell. What does it mean to be white? Trying not to be reckless with our lives. That one also reminded me, Henry in Chicago, he told us about Alonzo Brooks. Another case of a black person going to an event where they were the only black person present and they ended up dead. But in Alonzo Brooks case, his family child is missing, end up dead, suspicious circumstances. They're calling the police trying to figure out what happened. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow your roll. You're not going to be calling us every five minutes. Negras die every five minutes. Smorting cocaine and crack and all the other crazy things you all do. You're not going to bug us. If we get some information, we'll call you. Slow up all that calling us. That's what they told Alonzo Brooks. That's what his family testified to on Unsolved Mysteries, no less. That's the exact same thing. Lauren Smith Fields. That's what her family said. Now, when it's Gabby Petito and there's a missing white girl, did they do the same thing? Did they say, hey, 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 we're going to need you to put that phone down. We will call. Did they, that's what they say to white people? Let's see. Howard Dudley. I could talk about that, but uh, black male rapist, just black male rapist of the day. Uh, Lucky book club that'll be coming up on Thursday. Uh, last thing, I just end uh, Seven Bridges once again. Got to talk to your children uh, about racism, white supremacy. I do not have children. Seven Bridges, that's one reason I do not have children. His mother saying, Hey, I wanted my child to be a child. Who wants to talk to their child about white supremacy at five, six? That's an abomination. I want them to have fun. I totally understand that thinking like 1000%. I don't have children. I understand that. That's not fun. Who wants to sit down? Five-year-old. We could be, you know, learning about life and teaching them how to read and, you know, explore and enjoying food and all kinds of things. Just enjoying life and then being excited about everything. No. I got to tell them about Emmett Till dangers of white women white men racist child that's why we have to solve this problem as soon as possible but I mean that is absurd by 2022 that should be totally absurd at this point if you are an attempted black parent you're going to conceive a black child hey that is a mate that's right up there. I'm going to teach this child about fire. I'm going to teach this child about water safety. I'm going to teach this child about crossing the street safety safely. And I'm for sure going to teach them about white supremacy racism. Which will impact all of those things. We just had the Bronx fire and you know the dogs. They just sick dogs on black children in St. Louis could have added that one to it black children drowning because they don't give them swim lessons that's everything that you talk to them about racism will impact so I mean you can't sit there and ignore the greatest problem there is nothing else to talk about really white supremacy racism directly in uh, directly and or indirectly that is causing all of the other problems and or the obstacle to being able to take care of any of these other problems 
That's the one that we're going to have to talk about and talk about honestly. No pussyfooting. Speak to your children honestly about racism, white supremacy, and allow your children to hear you talking about racism, white supremacy uh, accurately, honestly, and often. Anywho, we will get to folks who dialed in uh, for this one program. I ask uh, no metaphors. Uh, we had a number of them throughout the segment. Uh, one that I'll touch now. Uh, they were talking about the police officers in New York and saying that they would be held accountable uh, if they overstep. They didn't say if they practice racism. They didn't say if they brutalize citizens. They didn't say if they uh, harm non-white people, black people in particular. That was another one. Black misandry going after black males. Tons with all those stops. Uh, they didn't say that. They said overstep. What's an understep? We doing a, a dance move here? What's going on? If we can make an effort, race soldiers, they consistently and skillfully, deliberately will use inaccurate words and metaphors to cause confusion. Victims, myself included, we are still learning. Sometimes we just don't have logic to articulate our views. So we will substitute an analogy, simile, whatever the combination. Uh, if we could make an effort to be precise, exact with our words, that would be appreciated. I will remind uh, about the metaphors. Uh, the number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts views questions uh, that would be grand uh, if you have extra thoughts uh, just write them down don't forget make sure everyone gets at least one chance to share and then we will make sure that we get you on the line uh, I guess I should make sure I include before we hit the callers so the book club that will be back to normal time on Thursday. Alice Siebold, super excited. Rick James. Before we get to the book club, Dr. Martin Kavorkian uh, will be back on the cows. I've lost count of how many times he's been a guest, but very long time. Going all the way back to 2009, we got back on the air. Speaking of sci-fi, his book, Color Monitors, The Black Face of Technology in America, deals with the Matrix Terminator, many sci-fi films, and how racism, white supremacy is at the root of these narratives. Uh, so we just had a reboot of the Matrix franchise, so we'll talk about that. Uh, and then three other films. The three other films are uh, Die Hard, which is one of the films in his book. Uh, it just, the universe keeps presenting that film to me, and I didn't realize that that's a film that he actually writes about a lot in the book Color Monitors, and then I went back and watched it again. I was like, oh my god, yeah. We should get it. And the universe kept presenting it to me. They say Die Hard is one of the all-time Christmas movie classics, which so that's one or two. Die Hard, Matrix, King Richard loved it, and Miss Manderley, which is not a new film, came out in 2005. One of my super significant film. I won't say favorites. I need to go back and watch it, but wow. How many films do you watch that are directly about white supremacy, racism, and they have a code book in the film 
about how to practice white supremacy racism. I can't even think of another film, but that is Mandalay, all about white supremacy racism. It features the great Danny Glover uh, amidst some of the other actors that we've seen before. But uh, wow, I even wrote a review. I guess I'll post that. I wrote a review of this film uh, as well, reveals so much about white supremacy. But those are the films we'll discuss with Dr. Kevorkian on Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and then we'll be back to normal schedule. Lucky raping black males. Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Folks who dialed in, if you have thoughts, observations, comments to share, uh, lines should be open. Proceed. Oh, let's see. What's going on here? Hmm. Let's see. Oh, yeah. Audio should be. I don't know why it's not. Uh, that's so strange. Here, let's see. Yeah, I can hear myself. I don't know what's. Let's see. This service is provided in high definition. No. Access code accepted. There are six. Participants in the conference. Q&A session has started. The recording has started. All righty. I was on. I guess folks were not hearing me. That's so odd because I was on. My sound was going. It was being recorded. All the rest of it. I guess it wasn't going on the uh, phone line, uh, but it was being recorded. So the archive will be perfect. And I guess the folks who were listening uh, via the online stream, they heard what I was saying. But for whatever reason, it wasn't connected we just call that the uh usual suspects uh because i was dialed in i had been listening i was listening via the phone line uh to all of the audio segments that were playing and for whatever reason my audio was not going out over the uh folk for the people who dialed in via the phone uh to be able to hear me i reckon so uh, it'll be in the archives. I've been on chatting away for the last 40 minutes or so. I guess for the folks who dialed in via the phone line, uh, you can refresh or what have you. Apologies for folks who thought I was just hanging out and not uh, here. Yeah, looks like somebody did drop me a line to let me know that they uh, my audio was not coming through on the phone line. But I've been right there. Uh, just charge that to the usual uh, suspects and it'll be in the archives. I will not repeat the entire uh, 40 minutes of what I just said, just for the sake of the folks that are on the phone line, uh, I will, uh, yeah, just give a second. I'll read some of the comments that I got via email. Uh, I re emailed in, uh, and then if other folks, I guess if folks thought I wasn't here, or there was some crazy uh, problem that'll uh, just mess up uh, our participation from the live folks. But yeah, that's just some crazy tech issue because I've been connected. I was right here. I listened to all of the segments uh, that aired, uh, and my recorder or my commentary will be recorded uh, in the archives. You'll be able to hear. I even was able to hear myself. That's why I was very certain that I was, you know, my voice was going out. All this was uh, carrying through because I could hear myself as well. So usual suspects will be corrected uh, for the archives. Anywho, uh, I rewrote in. uh, Her commentary, I'll read those and then double check uh, if uh, folks 
Uh, if we messed out and will not be able to get participation since maybe people thought that we were not connected or what have you, uh, we can go shorter. Uh, folks that are on and able to hear, you can let folks know that it got corrected. If they have thoughts, observations to share, we'll double check and see if they have thoughts. But I'll read Irie's comments uh, really quick. Let's see. Irie wrote in, Hotep to you guys and to participants and listeners. Two things I want to share while performing as a substitute. I observed neither sleep or nutrition were taught in school at any grade level, K through 12. Uh, I'd say even beyond uh, you get to the university level. I would try to do it myself if the class agenda allowed it and urged children to look more up on it later. Another just as important thing not taught is online safety. Homeschooling is best. Uh, they have said that a number of black parents specifically have increased homeschooling over the past two years of the pandemic. So hopefully there'll be more of that Two, uh, I still have sleep difficulties after working just six months on second shift and being subject to mandatory overtime, which would force me to work third shift into first and sometimes back into second. I called in sick after getting off from a 19 hour shift and the supervisor told me I would need a doctor's note. I replied, I don't need a note to prove I have not slept in 24 hours and that you all have broken our union contract. The contract limited all mandatory overtime to 14 hours, including one's shift. This was repetitiously ignored under threat of suspension or firing especially for new staff this reminds me of emmy hope she's doing well yeah they will try to get she talked about that get all those overtime in and all the rest of it and you're about to die she talked about that when she was getting ready to go to uh med school uh p.s catching up on last week's book session and wanted to say that alice seabold is a bold face underscored liar oh and she spelled that out <laughs> book club thursday 8 p.m eastern um the sleep they they have uh done studies and research on third shift specifically and saying that that is really bad for your health that sleep is a core component of basic health uh and specifically being asleep at night that's something dr Cambon talks about all the time uh, and saying that people who consistently uh, are what, what they call it is the graveyard shift People who consistently are working that and or people who what she talked about where your schedule is really erratic, where maybe you work the so-called third shift today. Next week, they move you back to second. Next time they move you around to first or you get all these overtimes where you don't even have a schedule where your circadian rhythms in terms of your body's natural cycle of when you should be sleep which is very much affected by sunlight your body all over the place wait a minute it's thursday now we're supposed to be awake and sleep during the daylight now it's sunday now it's all flipped around now i'm supposed to be working during the daylight and sleep at night it totally uh, for many people i'm sure for some folks, maybe they can do that for a short period of time or even a long period of time and it won't have as much of an impact. But for many people, that sort of sleep schedule, psh, completely corrosive for your health and well-being. I know some people, they they adjust what they uh, Dr. Cornell West phrase where he says we are maladjusted. Some victims of racism, they do 
adjust to that nonsense to where, hey, yeah, they've been doing it for four. I know people who, yep, they did that. They worked the, the night shift, the graveyard shift for years and just adjusted to it. And, you know, whatever. I don't know what the long term health ramifications of all that are, but I don't think any of that is healthy. Really prioritize sleep and getting quality rest, not just. You know, I dozed off for a little while and the television was on and all the lights are on and fell asleep in all my clothes, like really getting high quality rest where you don't have a lot of noise, dark room, preferably at night. Anywho, uh, much obliged, Irie. Looking forward to the book club on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, let's see. Uh, again, I think now we are being picked up uh, online. I can see my volume bar. So we are being picked up again. Apologies to all the tech issues, I guess, or whatever that happened uh, for the folks who uh, dialed in. Uh, we're listening in. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to have all that corrected and, and be straight for Wednesday. Again, I am super not sure what happened because the line never connected like my not my uh, dial in the line that I'm on to dial into the broadcast never disconnected. As I said, that's the line that I listened to 90 minutes of our audio segments and no issue there. No idea. I didn't do anything but hang up and dial right back in. Didn't change the mic. Didn't jiggle a cord. Absolutely nothing. And now I can be heard. Anywho, uh, we'll see if folks have any uh, thoughts that they would like to share. The loyal folks who I guess hung out and stayed in there on the phone line uh, while I guess there was no sound for 40 minutes or so. Uh, if folks get it together, have any thoughts that they would like to share feel free if not we'll pick back up and try it again on wednesday uh at minimum for dr martin kevorkian uh the films that i mentioned that i guess the folks on the phone line didn't hear but it'll be uh in the archives for wednesday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific dr kevorkian uh let's see uh folks that listened in uh, i know you all did not hear gus t specifically but i suspect or i guess you all can let me know uh if you all heard the news clips or not, if you all have any thoughts on the news clips, I would hope even if it's three people, they did not just listen to 90 minutes of news and have no thoughts. But if that is the case, we will wrap up. I'm not going to uh, hang out until 9 p.m. If uh, folks didn't get here and got their listening experience disrupted, we'll give folks five minutes or so to see if they have any thoughts to share. And then we will call it a program again. Uh, all of what I said will be in the archives was recorded. Uh, I guess just tech issues kept the folks who dialed in via the phone lines from uh, hearing me the whole time. But that will be in the archives. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, folks are still spectating. So you all have five minutes uh, to spectate. Hang out on the line. Uh, if you, It looks like you all should be able to hear at this point. But you all have five minutes. Uh, if I don't see any hands in that point, then we will wrap and catch you all on Wednesday. Thanks for the patience. Uh, let's see anything else. Oh, one thing I didn't say, Mitch McConnell. That was one of the first segments that I played. Uh, man, I normally wouldn't even care about that because that's just attached to the voting issue where they've been talking about so-called voter repression. And, oh, you're trying to make it so that black people can't vote. And none of that is going to solve the problem. They could pass this legislation and still decide not to count the ballots that black people cast professional voting, if you want to call it that. Uh, I normally would not even care. That's not even a major priority of mine. Like other more important things that we'd be talking about. But then to get into all this tackiness, number one, he wasn't even correct about uh, doing his correction when he said that black people vote 
at uh, the same rate as Americans. And he came back and said, well, I just left out the word almost. Where he placed almost in the sentence was black people voted almost. And then he came around and said roughly the same rate as all other Americans. So you left out many words. And even when you came back for the correction, you didn't even say the right word. You added the almost, which was about they voted almost the same level as the Americans. That's the same thing. Same idea that they talked about during Hurricane Katrina. Negros or refugees and all the rest. It just got more tacky uh, as I heard the apology. And then we couldn't even just leave it at that. Like, all right, I did my correction where I still didn't get it right or whatever. You niggers vote. Okay, we couldn't even leave it at that. No, 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 no. I'm offended. I marched with Dr. Oh, God. Yes, yes. Marched with Dr. King. I was there when they signed up. Yes, yes, yes. I was waiting for that. I voted for President Obama. But like, whoa, 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 whoa. So I did not vote for that negro. Sorry, I did. didn't get that far. But I stood in the same room with him. And I did stand with Dr. King. And I was there for the I Have a Dream speech. I am. Not, I was like, man, this is the same. I have. How I thought we were going to go. How many black friends I have, right? I've been to a black church. I love fried chicken. I carry a bottle of hot sauce in my briefcase. Hillary Clinton said that one back in 2016 when she thought she was going to be president. Does not get any better than tacky. If it had not descended into all of that, I would not have included that segment at all. It would have just been, you know, whatever, more tackiness uh, connected to voting and what have you. It's supposed to be what they call, I guess, a midterm uh, year. So we'll have more of that as we get closer to uh, November. And I guess it'll really crank, crank up next year when they get serious about, you know, the 2024 election. But either way, does not get any better than tacky. Mitch, please. Uh, let's see. Folks are spectating. Uh, so, again, archives will have my commentary. Uh, other folks uh, will not have their participation included. We missed some of the folks uh, via the phone line because they couldn't hear anything. For 30, I have no idea that is, I don't recall that having happened in our 13 years. I think I've been disconnected a few times uh, here or there uh, where my audio wasn't being picked up, but just kind of a odd one out of nowhere where, like I said, I was able to hear everything over the phone line for the whole duration, I guess, somehow until I began speaking. And then, miraculously, I wasn't being heard. Anywho, uh, we will be here Wednesday. Dr. Martin Kevorkian, super excited. Uh, he is an admitted white supremacist. So, by no means should folks be, you know, relax and uh, be thinking, oh, yes, we have a, a kindly white man. He is an admitted white supremacist. So he may just come and practice racism. But at least we got four quality films picked. Well, I won't say that. Uh, we got four interesting films picked. Uh, and two of them deal very directly with white supremacy racism. Uh, the other two, not so much. But I'm uh, looking forward. Die Hard. Especially any of the folks who have seen Die Hard, now that that film is so old and they air it, especially during the Christmas holiday, they put it on all the time. Uh, if you have not like critically from a counter racist perspective, I uh, endure read Dr. Kovorkin's book where he talks in detail about Die Hard, the black characters that are presented and how they fit a lot of the same tropes. Looking forward. Uh, but that'll be Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, let's see. We did hear Bay Area Mom, her classic uh, tale from one of the little fellows who was talking about Dr. King's holiday. An example 
you can speak honestly to young people about racism, white supremacy, and they can understand it. Let's see. Uh, Bay Area mom uh, with us. Uh, you were able to hear the clips. It was just me that you weren't able to hear. You were able to hear the audio clips from that I played earlier. We could cut off at like maybe seven or, uh, well, for me, around seven. And then I'm just sitting there. I looked at the phone. I was like, it's still on. I looked. And then I went in the kitchen and then I came back and you were talking. I said, what's going <laughs> so, so that's what happened. Um, but it's okay because I can always go back to the archives. But um, I did hear the beginning of it. And. Um, I, it had been going around about whatever Mitch McConnell had said about um, leaving, you know, just basically saying what they always say, that we're not considered American. We're, we're not American. We're other, whatever other. Anything to be politically correct so it doesn't make it seem like what it is, but we've never been considered um, equal. So... I don't know why everybody's tripping. It's the same thing everybody says. So, um, I think that's all I wanted to say. So, I'll mute my line. Thank you for taking my call. Much obliged, Bay Area mom. I didn't think that was the most uh, important thing of the week by far, but... Yeah, did notice, did get a lot of attention. I think white people, that's one of those, like, I would much rather, like, Justin King, like, I think is way more important uh, in this black, any of these, Seven Bridges, you can pick any of those reports, way more important than, oh, yes, Mr. McCoy, yes, yes, he marched with Dr. King, and yes, yes, you're greatly offended, and blah, 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 and all the rest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Uh, white people does not get any better than tacky Mitch McConnell uh, let's see who did not tell us how many black friends and homies uh, he has uh, let's see uh, any of the folks thoughts observations that they need to get in the folks uh, who hung out on the phone line much obliged uh, archive as I said should be correct and I guess if you had thoughts uh, that you got discombobulated or what have you, uh, if you were able to hear all of the audio segments, uh, you can take notes and share them next week. Yeah, because Wednesday we'll have films to discuss and certainly Thursday it'll be the book club. So, yeah, we'll have other things to talk about uh, the other times that we're on the program between now and then. Um, I guess you should also check maybe the social media. I have to write if we have other guests on between now on Wednesday, I guess that could be a possibility um, when we had Chuck Stewart on the program on what day was that Wednesday, Thursday. That was all irregular this week when we had Chuck Stewart on the program this past Thursday. He gave us racist jokes, told us too, uh, and I said, man, we should have soon at some point. Uh, it is a non-white person, white guests only, but this is a non-white person with a white parent. But more importantly, she apparently is pale enough she can be accepted as white or at least she has enough experiences where people classified as white will see her assume that she's white and they'll go into their racist jokes and then she'll be like oh, <laughs> uh, I'm black 
And so she wrote about, because apparently this happens a lot. Like exactly what I said. They break out the racist jokes and then, ooh, a Negra. Ooh. That's actually in the book, uh, Joe Fagan, Two-Faced Racism. I think he has many of those that are like that, where it'll be, sometimes it'll be a white person who just, for whatever reason, they are accepted as white, but they have a non-white parent or same thing like our guest. It's a non-white person, but they're kind of pale. So sometimes, you know, they can racially ambiguous slip in whatever and people will go right into their racist joke and then whoops negro okay gotta be a little bit more careful next time looking if if that pops up between now and wednesday i will be super loud you know that is near and dear to my i was gonna say heart but that's a metaphor that is a subject matter that i am extremely eager to investigate so if that's between now and wednesday i will post about it many times with great glee uh, but if it's later on that's great too because then I'll have more times to remind you all about it and uh, prepare but racist jokes whew, man that is one of the few times when race soldiers are being honest just don't get lost in the chuckles uh, let's see soon folks uh, are good didn't see any other hands again uh, the confusion with the audio archive should be correct so you should be able to listen into that and at minimum hear what I said if you uh, missed out on any of the audio segments uh, that should be there as well that is a bummer because man the report on seven bridges uh, as well as Justin King or all of them really but uh, I thought those were especially uh, important if you have offspring talk to them about white supremacy racism super important and if they are in you know school with white children and white teachers and all the rest of it like man be checking in with them how are things going how are you feeling any problems being mistreated like be checking in see how they are doing and even with seven bridges that's another one we talk about that all the time with education those white women teachers didn't his mom she reported hey I'm being bullied putting me in the headlock on the bus and all the rest of this and he goes to report this right they tell you they don't want you to take the law into your own hand and if he had got a shovel and went and smacked one of these race soldier children upside the head then they would have expelled him and it's super predator and all the rest he does the correct thing let me go report this and you know let the instructor go and handle this be the disciplinarian oh no what can little old me what can I do to solve this problem and you, you don't want to be a tattletale do you nobody likes a tattletale mm-hmm now that's one if this had been one of those LGBTQ issues I don't think they would have said all that I could be error be an error but that's my general suspicion racism white supremacy that's consistently the one that oh we just don't want to do uh, boys will be boys you know they're just playing around mm. racist woman I think I said homeschooling try to have that discussion before conception about what your child's academic program is going to look like anywho uh, we will wrap there. Don't see any other hands. Uh, much obliged to the folks who 
hung in. Listen, Toby was worthy of your time and energy for the parts you could hear. Again, the archive uh, should be available eh, within, I don't know, 30 minutes or so of when we're all done here. Uh, so you should be able to uh, hear all of the program without interruption or disruption. And yeah, hopefully that will not be an issue moving forward. Any any crazy uh, mute? I don't even think I was muted on this one. I don't, I don't even have a guess as to what the issue was. But anywho, Wednesday, Dr. Martin Kovorkian, looking forward. Much obliged uh, for folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening or for folks who were able to listen for reels on the archives. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, Sobriety would be best. Uh, We didn't get to hear folks commentary, but the case with Justin King, man. Maybe getting a joint from a white person is not a friendly gesture. You can sub that out for beer, shot, whatever else. Uh, In addition to being sober, if you're going to be out and about, if you see somebody being hostile, rowdy, this is not a time for confrontation. You should be thinking this person could be armed. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. This person could have an armed entourage at the ready. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, not on the cell phone, uh, just doing the small things that we can to stay safe and doing little things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. A victim. Uh, a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.